Okay. So my name is Ed Vinson, and I'm a sinner. Genesis chapter three tells me why. It's the story of the fall of humankind, and, and we're looking at the book of Genesis in a sermon series called Stories in Genesis. Not going to preach word by word through the whole book of Genesis, but pick out important stories that, that are key to our lives. And boy, Genesis chapter three is a really important one. It talks about the fall of humankind into sin and separation from God. Actually, there are three falls mentioned in Genesis chapters one through eleven. The one in chapter three the, of sin and separation, how our first parents brought sin into the world, that fall. And then their descendants sinned so badly that the thoughts of their and intents of their heart was only evil continually. Sin became intolerable to God and God destroyed the world with the flood in chapter six through nine. We're going to look at that story next week. And the third fall, a surprising one, perhaps, is the descendants after the flood. Noah's descendants gathered at a place and built a tower. A tower to heaven where I presume that they thought they were going to overthrow God. But God came down and separated their languages and scattered them around the world. The Tower of Babel story in Genesis 11 was, again, another key moment of the fall of humankind into more and more sin. This is an important chapter, chapter three. It's foundational to theology of the rest of the Bible. So it's really important to our lives, too, that, that we look at it carefully. I encourage you to, to listen, put on your thinking caps, my teachers used to say, and to uh, maybe take notes. I have a sermon outline for you in the bulletin. Let's start by reading Genesis 3, 1 to 7. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die. The serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Five components that I see here of temptation that the tempter still uses today against us. The first is doubt. The tempter begins with a suggestion to Eve, which causes her to doubt God's command. He said, did God really say and that's always the case when we fall into sin, we doubt the truth. We doubt God's word. We, we question it. Now, who is the serpent? This Nachosh. It is properly translated serpent 
that same word in the Hebrew. That's how it's translated in other places. But the etymology of this word is really interesting. It, it means to shine or the shining one. And the verbal form can mean to oracle or to divine. So we picture in our minds probably a talking snake. I think that's the wrong thing to think in your mind. A talking snake, wouldn't that startle you? It, it would have startled Eve. But she doesn't seem surprised in this story, does she? It's like nothing unusual is happening at all. She knew he was a supernatural being. In fact, he was the anointed throne guardian cherub. God was in the garden. It tells us in 3.8, God walked in the garden. It was the earthly home of the divine council. Isaiah, or rather Ezekiel 28 says this. You were in Eden, the garden of God, and every precious stone adorned you, referring to Satan. Ruby, topaz, and emerald, chrysolite, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and beryl. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian cherub. For so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. Obviously, this is more than an earthly king. This is pointing back to a supernatural being beyond this earthly king. Referenced in Ezekiel 28. Adam and Eve were used to God's presence in the garden and probably Jesus and the Holy Spirit and angels and other supernatural beings. Nothing unusual that this being was talking with her. Now, he's not named, but other Bible writers tell us who this being is in Second Corinthians, a couple places. But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. No wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. And then in Revelation 12, 9, the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Satan wasn't happy that God had made the world and animals and put man to rule over them. He, he was in a malcontent from God's divine counsel, and he wants to blow up God's work in the earth. Now, maybe you're curious like me. Why did God allow him to tempt our first parents in the first place? And I think the short answer is free will. God wanted to create human beings in his image who would willingly love him and worship him and serve him and obey him. God knew it was risky, but he knew that the rewards were greater still. And so this created being who had a free will, Satan, chose to rebel and tempts us to do the same. And he's had thousands of years of experience in doing it. So don't listen to his lies when he gets you to doubt God's word, Adam and Eve were created as perfect people. They didn't even know what sin was, but they had free will. So would they be content and satisfied with a relationship with God or would they want to go outside that circle? And that's the choice we face daily, don't we? God or self? Who's going to be on the throne of my heart? Did God really say? 
Did God really say there's really a hell? Did God really say that the only way to him is through Jesus Christ alone? So when you doubt God's word, you become a judge over it. And when you become a judge over God's word, you put yourself in a very dangerous situation. You mean you can't eat from every tree of the garden? God is mean and unreasonable, says Satan. And he tempts us the same way. Notice Eve's response in verses two and three. If you have your Bibles open to Genesis three, she gets the first part right, doesn't she? In reciting what God had told, actually told Adam. Then she adds, we're not even allowed to touch it. So it's like she's buying into this God is unreasonable bit. God never said you can't even touch it. So we add to God's word when we doubt. Here's a second component of temptation that the tempter still uses the day against us. Deception. He sees Eve doubting and confused. So he tells her more lies. Why? Because he's a liar. John eight forty four. You belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. You will not die. He lies, contradicting God's clear statement. He's so authoritative, isn't he there? You will not die. Like the lie of transhumanism today that wants to mix human with technology for the end result. You will not die. You'll live forever. But they're dead spiritually. They're walking zombies. They walk and talk, but are dead spiritually. Satan says, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Eat a bite of fruit and you'll die. How stupid does God think you are? He would never kill you. You're the apex of his creation. Then he goes for the kill shot in verse five. You'll be like God. Why does he tempt us that way? Because that's the desire of his heart. Isaiah 14, 13 and 14. Again, this goes beyond an earthly king that the prophet is talking to. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. A lot of I wills there. And that's what false religions do today. They teach that humans are God or will become God's. And really, it's very tempting and desirable to outwit God is intoxicating. Perhaps today you're angry with the limitations that you feel that God has placed on your life. But I appeal to you, don't succumb to deception. The third component is desire. And that's in verse six. The eye gate is a very powerful tool for the enemy to work through. Eve saw, it says, three things. And notice that these are the three same three things that Satan tempted Jesus with in the wilderness. Look at Matthew four and Luke four, maybe today later. First John two sixteen tells us this. 
For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes and the boasting of what he has and does does not come from the father, but from the world. Satan knows the same old tricks work, the sensual, the aesthetic, the intellectual or pleasure, possessions, power. Be like God. God is worried you will be like him and unseat him. He's jealous of you. Satan stirs all kinds of desires in us. James tells us in chapter one, when tempted, no one should say God is tempting me for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire, he's dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Almost seems like in the James passage, our sinful nature is enough that we don't even need a tempter. We're quite capable in our own fallen nature to have desires that are contrary to God's will. Fourthly, we have decision. He wants you to make a decision. We doubt God's word. We ignore our conscience. We've been deceived by his lie. Then that wrong, forbidden desire is acted upon and it is sin. And this here, we're seeing the moment of original sin. Original because human beings had not sinned before. And we see that this sin spread from Eve to Adam because Adam was right there listening. I hope you caught that. He wasn't off somewhere distant, plowing the back 40 or anything. He was right there. With her. Now, the New Testament sometimes blames Eve for being deceived and falling into sin, but usually it blames Adam because he was the one who heard the prohibition before Eve was even created. He should have protected Eve, or he should have walked away, but he didn't. He was weak and tempted. The writer John Milton says Eve murdered Adam and Adam chose Eve over God. Can you relate men, women? If you were Adam and Eve, put yourself in their shoes that day, what would you have done? Probably eaten. We think we really love God and his word, yet we still obey and we have the Holy Spirit in us. We all want pleasure, possessions and power. We want to be God. And so we make decisions against the truth. And then that leads to the fifth thing, death. Verse seven. But you say they didn't die. They kept living. Maybe Satan was right. They died spiritually. Their close relationship with God died. The spirit within them died that day. They became spiritual nudists. You see, I think they were clothed with glory before, like a garment over them, that they shone bright. That's my personal belief. And then when they sinned, the glory left. And then they looked and said, we're naked. Now they wore spiritual rags, which is what our righteousness is before God. Their eyes were opened, all right, to the grotesque. They thought it would be beautiful to have the knowledge of good and evil, but it turned out to be ugly. Romans 5:12 Therefore just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin and in this way death came to all men because all sinned the end result was death 
Ask a person on the street and I guarantee you'll hear the answer. I'm a good person. It's hard for us to see our own sin and to overcome it. We certainly can't wait to the desire stage. It's too late by then. We have to recognize it at the doubt and deception stage and rebuke the enemy. Quote scripture like Jesus did in Matthew 4 and Luke 4. Pray for God's power. Call that friend. Avoid those places that were easily tempted. So how did Adam and Eve respond to sinning against God? Let's read Genesis 3, 7 through 13. I'm going to read verse 7 again. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Three things here. Three reactions. They sowed fig leaves to cover up their bodies. They had guilt when they sinned. Now they were full of shame as well. Secondly, they, they hid from God. They're fearful of God now. They covered up. We hide. And then they blame others. We blame others. We shirk responsibility. At 225 of Genesis, at creation, it says that the couple was naked and not ashamed. Now they're aware of their nakedness. They're self-conscious. They focus on self now. They felt guilt for the first time and they feared for the first time. God is scary now before they walked with God and fellowships with God. Now they hide from him and avoid him because they know they've sinned against him and he's angry. And then they blame. Isn't it easy to blame? That person may be partly responsible for getting you to do what you did, but hey, they didn't hold a gun to your head. You still made the choice to sin against God. But here's where it gets better. God comes looking for them. And, and we see the first question that God asks in the Bible. So what's God's first question? Where are you? God's heartbroken. He's hurt. He's been rejected. But yet he pursues us when we sin. We're not looking for him. He goes looking for us because he wants us back. That's Christianity, not human beings pursuing God, God pursuing sinful humans. First, John four ten says this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God's second question, who told you you were naked? Wasn't the serpent? They knew themselves that they were naked. Third question, have you eaten? God has given them an opportunity to confess here. And God stops asking questions when they both admit they ate the forbidden fruit. 
It's not a perfect confession because they blamed other people, but God accepts it. And then God tells them results of sin in the next verses. Let's read three fourteen through 20. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. And you will strike his heel to the woman. He said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing with pain. You will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you to Adam. He said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you through painful toil. You will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. The curse of sin. There's consequences For sin, always the serpent would crawl. Women would have labor pains. God had told them originally to multiply and fill the earth. Children were a part of God's plan for his human family. But it would be hard now. Her relationship with her husband would be strained. She would desire to rule over him. The battle of the sexes. Wives seek to dominate and husbands resist. Then he either abuses her or abdicates his leadership role in the home. Feminism, male chauvinism. God had originally designed them as equals. Now they both want to rule and dominate the other. The curse on man was the ground would be cursed. Before the land was a labor of love. Now it's toilsome. And it eventually swallows him up in physical death and he returns to the dust from which he came. Both men and women now have hard labor. Life is hard. Work isn't a curse. The toil of it is. And so we long in our hearts for heaven. We long for the new garden. But I want to circle back to verse 15. That is a very important verse. In fact, that verse is so important, it has its own name. The Proto-Evangelium, which means first gospel. It's the first hint of grace and a savior in the Bible. Now, something I noticed and really pondered some this week was your seed and her seed. This is another reason I know we're not talking about literal snakes here, like little baby snakes. No, Satan's seed, Satan's offspring. There's going to be spiritual warfare from now on. And your seed, Eve, your offspring from this woman would be descendant who would come someday born of a virgin that would be the savior of the world. Satan will strike his heel. And he did that on the cross. He thought he won when he crucified Jesus. But Jesus crushed his head on the cross. He won the victory. 
Romans 16, 19 and 20. Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I am full of joy over you. But I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. And the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Paul has to be referring back to Genesis 3 here, thinking of that. Colossians 2.15 even more pointedly tells us, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. Adam hears this promise in verse 15 and changes his wife's name from Isha, woman, he's Ish, man, to Eve, which means life. Out of woman would come the life of the world, Jesus. Adam may have had more understanding here of what's going on than we give him credit for. Now, let's finish the story. Verses 21 to 24. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden. Everything is east of Eden now. Cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. You notice it said God made them garments of skin. He didn't order them from the factory on Amazon. This is significant because it had to have come from an innocent animal. God himself did the first animal sacrifice. The innocent animal died for the guilty couple. God will never accept our own efforts to cover our sin by our own means. He gives grace, not justice. Justice would have demanded that God kill them. Sin causes death, spiritually than physically. But we see the parallel already here in the garments of skin. Jesus, the innocent Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Not his sins, our sin on him. We don't deserve his grace, but we need it. We receive Christ's righteousness and live in it. Michael Heiser, I think, has a real powerful quote about this. This is the delegitimization, the defeat of Satan's agenda. If you are a member of the kingdom of God, this is basically what Luke 10, 18 is about. If you're a member of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, then Satan has no more claim over you at all. If you are a member of God's kingdom, And in the New Testament theology, you loop all this other stuff in. You're in Christ. You're in union with Christ. You're one with Christ. If you're in that kingdom, if you're in that body, you will have eternal life. Which means that what happened at the fall no longer applies to you. You will conquer death. You will have eternal life because Christ is going to rise and he did rise. And Satan has no more legal claim over you at all. 
You are no longer estranged from God. You have been brought back into relationship with him. So the Genesis three problem is fixed. And this is what Jesus is alluding to in conjunction with the atonement or with the announcement of the kingdom of God. And that announcement operates in tandem with demonstrations of power over Satan and demons. The last act done here in this passage is to ban Adam and Eve from the garden. God had to keep them from the tree of life because if they would have eaten from it in their sinful fallen state, they would have lived forever in that fallen state, forever in guilt, fear, shame and blame. But the word of God tells us that we will someday eat from the tree of life in heaven. Revelation 22 two. Down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Let's close with a few points of application. How can I apply Genesis three to my life? Pray. Pray, as Jesus said, that you be not led into temptation. Pray for strength to overcome it. Every day you get up, you pray, God, help me overcome the enemy today. I put on my spiritual armor and then admit your sin. When we do fall, when we do mess up. When we doubt God's word and sin against him, just confess it to him. God, I messed up again. Please forgive my sin. And he will because he's provided the means to do that through Christ and then put on the garment of Christ's righteousness. Receive that forgiveness of sins. God won't hold it against you if you confess it. Let's pray. And with your eyes closed, I'm going to ask as I lead us into prayer here, if there's someone here this morning, perhaps that is hearing this message and saying, I don't know if I have a personal relationship with God through Christ. I don't know if my sins are forgiven. I've been trying to be a good person and hope when I stand before God someday, he'll take that into account. No, it's through Christ alone, his death on the cross. If you've never had a moment of that confession of sin and receiving Christ in your heart, just raise your hand. Just want to give that opportunity this morning. If there is somebody that needs to make that decision today, you're ready to do that. Okay, Lord. I thank you for the truth of your word. It is true. Every bit of it. This is history, not mythology. Thank you for your means of providing for our sin. Adam and Eve's sin, our sin with your son on the cross. The most precious gift you could give you gave. What more could you do? How much more could you show your love than giving us Jesus? He died there to erase our sin that we might be in him. And have a place with you. Jesus makes possible a relationship with you that we can enjoy every day. Help us to walk in that more and more. And to say no to the enemy. And yes to you. Each day. In Jesus name I pray. Amen. Let's stand.